This is Sports Cutting Edge for ASTN, the Australian Sports Technologies Network. Here's your host, Lockie Wills. Uh, Welcome to another week of Sports Cutting Edge. Thank you very much for your company. We are here all thanks to the Australian Sports Technologies Network, powering sport through innovation. Check them out, astn.com.au. Huge show for you. We've got one of the greatest athletes in Australian sporting history. He's the pioneer of the modern AFL player, Carlton Premiership player, Carlton captain, AFL Hall of Famer, All-Australian, MVP, Anthony Kudafidis, the big Kuda joins us on the show. As well as that, we're going to head to the US and speak to Dave Geddes, who's one of the leaders of American sports technology. We'll get an insight into what the next 50 years is going to look like. Big vision, big picture. Let's see what's happening. Dave's on the inside of this, particularly when it comes to AI, the metaverse. As well as that, we're actually going to talk about esports. Big prediction from Dave. Looks like esports could well make their olympic debut in 2028 in la dave's going to have the story on that and of course hayley mcadam joins us this week we're profiling patty mills in modern football the the most celebrated players are the big bodied midfielders who are built like goliaths but able to play with the athletic dynamism of someone maybe built half their size. It's the norm now. 25 years ago, there was only one bloke doing that. He was the first to do it. He was the pioneer of the modern AFL player, Carlton Premiership player, Carlton captain, AFL MVP, Hall of Famer, All-Australian, Anthony Kudafidis. Kuda, welcome to the show. Glenn, thanks very much, mate. It's uh, great to be on here with you. I really do appreciate it. I don't know if I like the couple of those frames in the background, mate, but we can talk about that later on, I'm sure. <laughs> Well, for the benefit of those uh, listening, so we've got a bit of Collingwood memorabilia on the wall. And actually, this is probably the thing I should have led with. The best thing about Cooter is growing up a Collingwood supporter. You're, you're a Collingwood supporter deep at heart, surely. Yeah, I was. Like, to be honest, I grew up. I, my first uh, local football club was East Thomastown. They were black and white. Yeah. I can't recall if I was already a Collingwood supporter before then or whether that was the reason why I became a Collingwood supporter. But our school, our lo- our local primary school, like it was, it was everyone was either Carlton or Collingwood. It was very rare to even see any other teams, and if there was, it was very like minimal amounts of numbers. So it was either Collingwood or Carlton. Real weird when you think about it nowadays. But uh, I did grow up crying every year because Collingwood would lose. But I did celebrate the nineteen ninety premiership, although I was like at Carlton and, and almost signed my first contract just after that grand final. Pretty much, I was still a mad uh, Collingwood supporter at that stage. Well, actually, I read something where you and your great mate, Ange Christou, uh, would, obviously, you're at Carlton at this stage in those early years, and then you'd finish your game, what, the under-19s or something, and then Ange would have the Collingwood jumpers in the bag, you'd put the Collingwood jumpers on, you'd go watch the Pies play and win. What's Is that right? Very good, very close. Yeah, like Ange was mad, Collingwood supported love Peter Dacos, and so we would turn up in the under-19s, you know, we'd play our game early, but Ange would always have his Collingwood... Uh, Earns you in his bag. So as soon as you shout, man, he used to go off. And like, I remember walking out of the change room, like, ah, hey, he'd call me Feedy. He'd go, anyone looking? And I'm like, I had to look around and make sure no Carlton people were looking. And 
off came the current windsheet, on came the Collingwood Guernsey, off he went to watch uh, Collingwood play. He just, you know, he absolutely loved them. Like, as much as I loved them, I, ne- I never really went to games as such, but he was, like, literally mad and just watched, you know, Peter Douglas's every single move. And so that's how crazy he was for the Collingwood Football Club. Isn't that fantastic? Well... Yeah, for, for anyone over the age of sort of I don't know, 25, 30, jump on YouTube and have a look at Anthony Kudafidi's play football. It'll blow your mind. I mean, the, the 2000 season, arguably the best individual season in the history of football, averaged 26 disposals, six marks, two goals a game. But perhaps the 99 prelim, the last quarter, sums you up the best. And it's one of the greatest games of football. Uh, you know, the most heartbreaking game for Essendon supporters, maybe ever. And equally, the, the greatest game for Carlton supporters, apart from premierships. In the last quarter, you get thrown in the midfield. You get thrown in the midfield, about two minutes in, 10 touches, six marks, two goals. You win the game for Carlton. Stephen Kernahan called it the greatest quarter of football ever played. Take us back to that day. What was going through your head when you get the call? You're going into the midfield. The game's on the line uh, at a grand final appearance the next week. It's all on the line, and it's up to you to do it. Uh, I think I always prided myself in a big being a big game performer ever since I was a junior too. And you know, we talk athletics, and I had a really good junior athletic career. I would always perform my best in the big occasions. I don't know why it was. I don't know whether it was the build up of it or the nerves didn't get to me. I'm not sure. I'm not saying I played great in every big game, but the prelim final was one of those big games. And uh, I remember before the game, I, no, I love John Elliott. I, I really did. And. Uh, I remember him coming into the change rooms and he came up and he goes, Kuda, I've got a funny feeling about today. And I'm thinking, mate, are you serious? Like, we've lost Essendon by 40-odd points the first time we played and we lost by 70-odd points the next time. I mean, they were pretty much the unbeatables going into that game. And I was hearing that Essendon supporters were lining up for grand final tickets. So this was almost going to be like a training drill for them, which is fair enough. I mean, we weren't the most consistent thing that year. Our best were great. We had a great list of players and it was really just, you know, a matter of us putting it together. Now, Jack came in and I, I don't know, he got me going, right? He got me even thinking of the past, like, 1970s, 80s, like being a Collingwood supporter. You know, every time that Carlton were behind, I'd somehow come out and win and do these unbelievable things and that was all part of their culture. And I'm thinking, does he know something I don't know? Now, whether he got the other players just as, you know, hyped up I'm not sure the 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 atmosphere, as you would expect anyway, for a prelim final in the change rooms were just. I, I couldn't wait to get out. You know, I mean, we're all each to just get out. It was, although it may not have been the perfect day in my mind as I'm running out of the race. I'm thinking this is the perfect Melbourne day to play footy. And uh, there we were at halftime, like like oh, I'm walking in thinking, oh my God, we could be in another grand final here. Well, what's going on anyway? And come out in the third quarter and did what they should have done all four quarters. They kicked seven goals, seven against us, and we're actually leading by three-quarter time. So we might have been three goals in front, and then all of a sudden we're two goals behind, maybe three-quarter time. Mm. They play an outstanding quarter. I was, I was in the back pocket on Stephen Alessio. I'm watching the ball go over my head, thinking oh, we're in trouble here. And then I remember walking to um, to the boys, you know, to to the to David Park and there the, uh, at the huddle. I, I forgot the uh, the name of it. And I remember, I don't know, like. Wayne Britton was pretty much taking control of everything at that stage also, although he was assistant, pretty much making all the moves. Barry Mitchell was sort of there, you know, helping. And I remember walking there and uh, just thinking, please, whatever you do, just put me in the midfield. Because I felt really good that day. I've just been itching and playing midfield. But because I was so versatile, I had to, like, sacrifice a lot of my game. Whether they needed me up forward, I had to play up forward. If they needed me down back, I had to play down back. And so 
But I knew my best footy was in the midfield. And uh, and as I went into the uh, huddle three-quarter time, I was waiting. I didn't get the call. But then last quarter, Essendon must have kicked the first goal. I'm not 100% sure. I need to go back and have a look. And then I was like, I seen the runner come to me and I thought, He's going to say I'm in the midfield now. I knew it. I knew it was coming then. And that was, yeah, two, three minutes in. And, uh, yeah, I was just like an excited young kid. And so, you know, I went out there. And uh, I remember the first one must have been after the centre bounce I, I, as I got called. And then uh, Justin Murphy had the ball half forward flank. And I was down the other side of the, the ground on the wing. And I was sprinting, thinking, just wait, just wait, Murph, just wait. And he must have seen me because he kicked it in long in the top of the square. And then, you know, I was able to mark the ball and, you know, kick that goal and uh, we, we started to get going then. And it was an unbelievable game. And uh, it was so close right to the end. And like what you said, Lachlan, I, I believe, apart from all the premierships, this, for the people that in particular were around back in those days, the people that were at the ground, the people that stopped apparently when they were driving, they pulled over the side of the road for the people that couldn't make it, they were just going crazy for this game in particular. Cohen supporters would probably be the, the greatest game that they'll, you know, ever remember. Well, that's the, and, and the thing is, the, the key thing you were able to do was completely change the momentum of the game. Like we just saw in the grand final, you know, a month or so ago, you know, the doggies up by three and then suddenly Melbourne flick it and then it's gone. Similar pattern like what you're talking about, Carlton up, then Essendon come firing in the third quarter. So easily that could have been, you know, curtains for Carlton. You changed it. What about like the fact that you, as you as you're describing, you just got that attitude that you want to be the man to get it done how did is that something that just comes natural to you or or is it yeah can you describe that that winning mentality that you had and have i'm not sure i think it is just being competitive always have been ever since i was a young kid had an older brother paul who was 13 months older than me we went to battle every day you know and uh Whatever I needed to do to win, you know, I, I did it back then. It was always good when I had an older brother who was, like, really well-respected locally. He was a great footballer, great athlete, and uh, I think always held in a little bit higher esteem than me in terms of sports. I guess I was more to that that skinny kid that was so athletic and probably had this little bit of more natural talent than my brother, but he might have been a little bit more hardworking than myself, and maybe things came a little bit easier for me. And I remember when he became state uh, 110-metre hurdles champion. I thought, okay, let's go, man. It's time for me to really up the ante on my hurdles. And not only did I become a state champion, I became Australian champion in the 110 hurdles with an Australian record. And this is when I was, you know, Australian champion in the high jump until Tim Forsyth came along. So, uh, you know, and, you know, I did a lot of decathlon, like multi-events and stuff where I was, you know, I won so many of them. It was all because of, you know, me competing with my brother. But in saying that too, the, the area that I grew up in, the northern part of Melbourne, Laylor, Thomastown area, there was a lot of, you know, migrants that, you know, that migrated there. And, uh, you know, a lot of Australians too. But it was just, it was a young area of young kids and families. And there was so yeah. many of us that played and loved sport. And that made it just so much easier for us because we had like a ton of mates that just played footy, cricket and whatever we did, you know, jumped to the uh, over the primary school fences and we played all day, every day long outside, and that's what we did. And, you know, all the guys that were around back then pushed me to become a better sports person. We were all very competitive, and that's probably where it really came came from. And I think also prided myself on a big, you know, big game performance kind of, you know, person that I probably just instilled, you know, over my journey. 
I want to talk about that. In terms of where Carlton's at at the minute, like, uh, you know, I know that you guys at Carlton had that attitude. In finals football, that's where you come to play and it's where you win. Yeah. Um, over the last 25 years, for Carlton supporters, I mean, even I, as a Collingwood supporter, you actually feel genuinely a little bit heartbroken for Carlton, the fact there has been so much struggle. Like, there's a generation of Carlton supporters that don't know what Carlton greatness is. How do you turn it around, Kurt? How, how can you flick the switch in terms of culture and get it going back the right way? It's not easy. I think it takes a lot of hard work, a lot of time. I'm still, you know, like I, I sit here and just think, wow, Carlton Football Club. You know, we think back 70s, 80s and 90s, wow. Well, you know, what an institution they built through great leadership. And I know when I got there, to remember, I was a Collingwood supporter. My brother was Carlton. He would be cheering every year and I'd be crying. But I lived in the Carlton zone and so... I ended up with the Carlton Football Club. So I got to experience the last 11 or 12 years of this most incredible football club. But that doesn't include the time that I spent there in the under-19s and the under-15s too. So from afar, I was able to watch it. But the first time I walked through the corridors, and I remember walking through, looking in the corridors and the 200-game players, you know, with their their picture frames on the side there looking. I never thought one day that I would be one of those players. I, I thought I'd be lucky to play 10 or 20 games. But I ended up being one of them. But as I walked through the corridors, I walked into this most magnificent football club, you know, had leadership, power, success, premiership players. But the most important thing, it was led by who I believe was the greatest president of all my time there, and that was John Elliott. He was the man that, you know, led and created the culture and instilled it into us as a young kid, Lachlan. I remember walking in and I got really nervous because when when John Elliott spoke, he was all about, mate, if you're not going to win premierships at this football club, you will not be remembered. And we were all based around not winning home and away games and we wouldn't celebrate so much here. We, you know, close games or whatever. It was all about us making finals footy and then going on to win premierships. And I was lucky I got to experience that in 1995 as a 22-year-old kid. And to be honest, with the list that we had, and we only lost two games for the entire year, I thought we were going to win many more premierships after that. Now, I don't know if I, I don't think I took it for granted. I just thought the Carlton Football Club would never change the way that it was with their culture. But then, you know, the last five years of my career, when John left and we got new leadership into the football club, it's never been the same. It was a completely different environment mm-hmm. and uh, they haven't been able to rebuild it now. So certainly not, you know, a, a little click or a switch that's going to, change the culture of this football club, it's going to take a lot of hard work. Mm. They'd be, they'd be uh, well well positioned to get you there, you know, because you, you sum up that, that era of Carlton greatness. You know, it, it literally, you personify it. I want to talk to you. I mean, you're a great Australian story as well in the sense that, you know, your dad, Dimitrios, came out from Greece. Your mum, Anna, from Italy. You play in Aussie Rules, and Aussie Rules has got, you know, harks back to ancient uh, Aboriginal games. So you've got all these different cultures. And you out there, I mean, I think, you know, you really move the dial in terms of making Australia a more unified country. Um, how much pride do you have? I mean, you're, you're vice captain of the Greek team of the century. You're in the Italian team of the century. It must make you feel pretty cool on the inside to all you've done in that regard. Very proud of, uh, you know, my achievements. And uh, my father was actually born in Egypt uh, of Greek background and mum, yeah, was born in Italy. So if there was an Egyptian team in the centre, I'd probably be in that one too. But I don't think uh, we've been able to get the numbers quite up yet, but uh, I might have to search around just to give myself another accolade, you know. But uh, I am very proud. I'll be honest because, you know, my parents migrated here without their parents and basically my father came on his own. My mum did have a brother here. 
Um, but, you know, my mum lost both their parents by the age of 22. My father lost his mum when he was young. And then when he came to Australia, his father went to South Africa with his brother and sister and their partners. And uh, his other two brothers went back to Greece and uh, he never seen his father again. And so they didn't really have much here. But what they did have was the most incredible, like the Carlton Football Club, incredible country with, you know, freedom and opportunities and everything that they could just go and live and enjoy their life and work hard. And that's what they did as, you know, European migrants. They came here, didn't put their hand up, uh, out for anything. They put their hand up and said, where can I work? I'm happy to work. And they just worked their butt off. And I just watched them work and I watched my mum work in the garage. I watched the slave over the kitchen. I watched my dad, you know, take us around everywhere. They were uh, incredible parents and supported me the entire way. And I always say, I never would have uh, made senior football if it wasn't for their support and my brothers, who were great also. But they just followed me everywhere. I remember mum and dad always say, you're the best, you're the best. Even I don't know if they really actually thought that or whether they just were saying that themselves. But, you know, that 1995 grand final wasn't just about me and the football club. It was about my family. And, uh, you know, as we uh, entered into the bus after the game, uh, heading off to the function, I, there was two people that stood outside. It was the two proudest parents in the world. It was mum and dad. And I don't think... They could have ever imagined, you know, what I would have been able to do, um, you know, having, you know, that experience that. And one of the the photos that I, one of the true photos that I love and I posted on my Instagram not too long ago was a photo of my dad and John Elliott. And John Elliott, after he passed away, I posted it on my Instagram because that photo there has real significance. It was after the premiership. It was the greatest day of my life. And still to this day, I was 22 years of age. And to have Jack there, talking to my dad and laughing and all that, that's that's a memory that I'll take with me forever. So I know how proud they were and, uh, you know, to, to come here as migrants and to see and experience what they did and, uh, you know, all those things, to walk into the change rooms. We're talking about the Carlton Football Club. We're talking about AFL. There was, it was like a religion here uh, in Melbourne. So I don't think they ever could have imagined it. So I am proud of that. And, you know, that, that, that actually means a lot to me to, to say, you know, I'm part of the Greek and Italian Team of the century, two incredible cultures that I think change change the landscape here. Oh, you know, in Australia, the Europeans brought in a lot of culture, and we're very blessed to have, you know, been you know in this country. Maybe not so much now because it's crazy madness, but to all the indigenous people too that have allowed us to come on this land too. I, I apart from you know recent times, I always pinch myself and think how lucky I am. And any time relatives came from overseas to come to this magnificent country, they were just in awe and just thought. You know, what am I doing living in Europe when I, I could be here, you know, with so much opportunity? So I'm very blessed and lucky. Oh, well, mate, you, you represent, you know, the Italian and Greek communities so well. And, and you personally and both, you know, those cultures have made this country such a wonderful place. Um, hey, I want to talk to you in terms of uh, what you're doing now. I, I know that, you know, sort of 10 years or so ago, uh, your health wasn't the best, and people would find that hard to believe. You're the fittest bloke anyone's ever seen, and then your health's not going so so flash. Um, I know that you really you discovered a product by the name of Herbalife, which helped to get you back on track. Um, can you talk a bit about that whole journey for you? Yeah, I, well, I retired from football, and I was you know mentally in a bad, I guess, place. I'm not going to say I was depressed. I never try to use that word. It was the hardest time for me. My Life was when I lost my dad, you know, and that was back in 1998. I was still very young and still living at home. And uh, I used to drive mum and dad to every game. And when he wasn't there in 98, my form struggled because I just, my, my mindset wasn't in the right place. And uh, the club was very supportive. So I was very, very lucky. 
Um, and so when I retired, you know, I was a little bit lost. I'm like, okay, no football club wanted me back. The AFL, I tried to get in the AFL. They said, you know, we don't have any spots here. But then I seen them, uh, you know, uh, sign up a couple of other players probably three months later. So it was really hard when I thought of all, you know, I walked in the Carlton Football Club at 14, left when I was 34. So 21 years of my life, I spent playing football at the Carlton Football Club. And then to walk out and go, I don't know. I was the first player I played in every position. I don't know if there was any player before that that could. And I achieved what I did. I would have thought there would have been something that I could then instill into maybe some other players that were, you know, up and coming and maybe help out. But it wasn't the case. So I think through all the highs and, you know, of football, you know, the the sponsorships of Adidas and commercials that I did. And, you know, although my career started very slow, then it just really, you know, exploded a little bit after that. It was hard to then go, Okay, I'm going from that high, you know, contracts, you knew you knew you're training and all that, to all of a sudden go boom down here. And that's what I experienced yeah. back then. Now, in 2010, I also then got really un, unwell health-wise. You know, sometimes I'd sleep 11 hours a night, and that still wasn't enough for me. I'd go to work, I'd get home from work, I'd sleep on the couch. I went to see doctors, allergy specialists, blood specialists, whatever they told me to do, I felt worse and worse. You know, they're saying, oh, you've got too much yeast, and you don't eat this, don't eat that. And I was just like lost in life. I was uh, eating organic food. And that didn't help. So a friend of mine introduced me to Herbalife, not so much about the product, but about the business. But I was like, okay, I was a little bit confused with everything, but I seen the science behind the products and I knew he looked incredibly well for his age and I knew he didn't train a lot. I'm like, what have I got to lose? I trust him and whatever. I jumped on these products, but within six days, Herbalife changed my life. I bounced it out of bed after six hours of sleep. I had clarity of mind. I felt like the stress levels reduced a little bit too. And all of a sudden from there, I have never missed a single day of taking that product. So I thought, okay, here's a guy fit and healthy. I felt like I was invincible when I played AFL footy. I could eat whatever food, you know, Greek tan, like whatever it was. I felt great. But then all of a sudden there I was feeling, you know, really down in the dumps. Like health-wise, I stopped training for a little while as well. I'm, I'm thinking I was just waiting for some bad news to come. And these products changed my life completely. I thought, okay, these products are so good that maybe I can help a lot of people out there. And that's all I've done. There's some people are skeptic, you know, like especially when I first started, they're skeptical. Oh, what are you doing with that company? And they have all their theories on it, but really don't understand what it's really like within these four walls of uh, Herbalife. And that the company and products changed my life, my mindset and everything. And from that day, you know, I've just tried to make myself a better person, be the right role model to try to inspire others too that may not be in great health wise at the moment to looking <clears throat> for something. Now, I can't say these things are going to change your life like they did with me but I've impacted a lot of people uh, along my journey in the last 10 years. I'm going to continue to do that because I know I have remarkable products and that means we have whole foods and we implement some of these remarkable supplements and internal cleansing stuff that people need now to stay healthy. And so at the age of 48, people think I train every single day. Uh, I haven't been able to run in the last six or seven months because of my hip. I've just did five, I did five one minute runs yesterday. So depending on when people uh, listen to this, um, on my hip and then I'll start to continue to do that with a little bit of bike work but to me the most important thing is the nutrition part yes train of course good mindset reshaping but nutrition and mindset and mindset is also critical well I, it just quickly I, it's it's hard to believe that the AFL and Carlton wouldn't be welcoming you back with open arms like that just it just makes no sense that is just crazy and I can I can understand or can sort of connect to that idea of how that would get you feeling pretty, you know, a bit not flash on the inside because you've given so much. You've literally, you're the face of the game for, for such a long time. And 
Yeah, I mean, that's crazy. So it's very understandable that would have you feeling a little bit, you know, not so great. But I love the fact that through diet, you're able to get it going. And I know um, your, your motto is uh, 20% exercise, 80% nutrition, 100% mindset. And people uh, on your uh, CUDA Instagram, so CUDA Instagram, uh, you can, uh, on the link tree, there's a little link there in the bio, you can get on there and connect to Herbalife. Another thing you're doing is CUDA Fit, CUDAFit.com. And I love this because, you know, something that we're even more conscious now because of obviously COVID, you know, it's extraordinary. We are such a, a great country, fit country, Olympic medals everywhere. But the fact that, you know, about uh, nearly half the country is overweight or obese. And it's, and you know, it's something that we need to try and tackle. Kud, I want to ask you, and I'll actually get personally relate to it. So as a kid, up until probably about 15 or something, I was I was a big kid. You know, I probably weighed a bit similar to what I do now. And so I can understand what, it, what it's like for people. So it's not about shaming people, but it's also about uh, trying to get people to see that, hey, you know, we do need to get things going better for mental, spiritual, not to mention physical health. Kuda, how do you try and connect to people who aren't, you know, sort of uh, built like a, you know, uh, like a gladiator like yourself? How do you connect to the average people out there that are trying to turn their life around in that regard? Yeah, I'm certainly not built like that anymore, I can assure you. Um, no, but... I saw you on, on Facebook the other day. You're looking bloody good, mate. <laughs> uh, well, certainly, I've like, I probably weigh very similar to when I play, but I just don't have the shoulders and don't have the muscle size of what I used to because. I've got arthritic shoulders and, you know, just everything I just work around, but I always try to find a way to just do what I can. But I think for people out there, it's not about comparing themselves to myself or anyone else. It's about comparing of your own level 10 best and whatever that means. So Lachlan, for you, might be a little bit different. And so maybe some people, you know, it's not about the abs like myself. You know what I mean? I look in the mirror and go, I've got to make sure I've got the abs or whatever, 48, to inspire people. It's not, not about the abs. It's not about the size of the muscle or the bicep, you know. It's about you and getting yourself healthy and uh, whatever it is that you want to achieve. Like, you know, I've helped some people lose 45 kilos. Like 20 and 30 kilos for us is like a normal thing. We're just like, oh, yeah, well done, 20 or 30. That's okay. Anything above that, it's like, man, that, that's pretty good. But when I look at it and go, wow, man, that's a lot of kilos. But it's not just kilos as in losing muscle and the skin saying. And it's, it's a healthy way to lose it. You look good. Uh, you look younger in, you know, uh, in time. You reshape better. Your skin comes in place. You maintain your muscle mass. That to me is a healthy way of doing it. And so, with our lifestyle, if uh, I posted in my client group just even today, because um, you know I ate uh, fish and chips last night. Ange uh, owns a fish and chippery in Northgate, so I ate it last night. And, you know, overate too much salt and all those things. But with our diet, it's about being strict when you can, but then enjoying your foods too. And so, a lot of diets, it's like I'm just eat this much and I've got to weigh and measure. But if as soon as they, you know, go out of whack with whatever they're doing, they put on a kilo or two, then it's hard work for another kilo or two. I can't do it. I, I seriously wouldn't be able to do it. I love the way that I do it. I smash herbal. I've hard throughout the day. And uh, and night I just eat the foods, whatever it is that I, that I eat, and I avoid your fast food, you know, junk, junk foods or whatever. So I try to avoid it. I love my healthy burgers and I love my pizzas and I love my pastas and I love my souvlakis and I'll continue to eat that and still stay lean because I know 80, 90% of the time I'm smashing the Herbalife products and so then I can do that. And so we try with our community too, try to build it as positive as we can and make it as simple as we can. We don't try to complicate it. You don't have to weigh and measure. You don't have to be so so strict. Um, 
But you've got to, you know, be obviously then, you know, get the results, get energy, recover well from your training, sleep well at night. It's all these other things that to me is really important as well. It's not about you coming or someone coming to me and saying, I've lost 20 or 30 kilos and they're looking like this and they're tired. And it's it's not about that. It's about coming to me and going, look how I'm looking. So people go, man, you are looking good and healthy. No matter what age it is, you can still do it. Well, that's it. Something that's sustainable, something that's going to last, and, and something that doesn't feel like torture. What you're saying just sounds fantastic. So kudafit.com and jump on Kuda's Instagram and uh, click through to Herbalife. Hey, before we go, Dancing with the Stars, you're back. You're the 2006 <laughs> champion of Dancing with the Stars. You beat Chris Hemsworth. So you yeah. beat Thor at Dancing with the Stars, <laughs> and now you come back for the All-Star season, which is going to air early next year on Channel 7. You've just uh, come back from Sydney filming that. Had, did you have a bit of fun? Good good stuff? Yeah, I did. Now, going back on Thor, he's done all right since uh, Dancing with the Stars, hasn't he? Okay, I think he's done a little bit better than me. So although I beat him, he's, <laughs> I'm looking at him now going, wow, man, you've done extremely well. But he was a great man. I had Gazy on there, Tams. There were some great people and celebs. We had an absolute ball and laugh. I was least favourite to win in 2006 by the odds, and I went all the way and uh, somehow won it. So, yeah, I did get asked to go back. It was a great series. I mean, obviously, I can't talk too much about it, but I felt like there was like one or two or three levels up from the dancing capabilities of the celebs that were, were chosen in this one too, and it was fun. I had a great time in Sydney. I got to spend a bit of time in Bondi and that as well, and the weather in Sydney. I got to see sites in Sydney that I never used to, you know, Never even bothered to go and see, but just to see how remarkable it is. It's one in, I don't know, like which other city could be like Sydney. And the, the people around that knew of me and I caught up with and took me to sites that I, I would, would not have even known it existed if they weren't, you know, locals. And I went there as a tourist, you know, to go and have a look. So I had a great time. I'm glad they asked me, like, and believe it or not, I uh, was disappointed. It, it came a time where this year, yeah, we're building a house and so I had to move rentals and it was a bit smaller. And uh, the crystal, you know, my mirror ball in Dancing with the Stars was there. And, um, and it, can you believe I just, because it was fell apart that I actually thought, and it actually killed me to say, all right, all right we need room. All right, it's time maybe to move on without it. Yeah. And I got the call a month later to be on Dancing with the Stars. So we talk about things that you regret in life. I just... Uh, you wish I just didn't do that in honesty, but look what happened. I got a call about a month later and I did the, the series again. So there you go. And I thank them, Channel 7 Warner Brothers, because I had just such a great time. Well, on the football field, you inspired generations. Now you're inspiring people to help get us healthier, get us fitter. Uh, jump on cooterfit.com and also cooter on Instagram and uh, click through to Herbalife and Cuda Fit. It's wonderful everything you're doing. Cuda, you're an absolute gentleman. I really appreciate your time. Thank you anytime. Ah, uh, what a ripper. Anthony Cuda Feedies, bloody legend. Uh, next up, we head to the US and chat with Dave Geddes about the future of AI and the role that the US defense industry, the, the research that is at the absolute cutting edge there, is helping to shape what sports tech looks like, and also esports set for a potential birth, a debut run at the 2028 Olympic Games in LA. Dave Geddes with all that is next. You're listening to Sports Cutting Edge for ASTN, the Australian Sports Technologies Network.
Oh, it's a great honor to have us joining on the show a, a heavyweight of the American sports tech industry, founder and president of the International Sports Tech Association, Mr. David Geddes. Welcome to the show, Dave. Hey, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, I'm looking forward to sharing whatever I can with you, with your audience. Uh, well, look, it's fantastic to have you on, and particularly this timing. I always like to speak to people when they're happy. And you're in Atlanta, you are a Georgian, and the Atlanta Braves have just won the World Series as we are recording this. How do you feel? Oh, wow. Um, you know, I watched a lot of the interviews of the players and, and the, the mics, you know, all the, the media people put the mic in front of them and asked them, how do you feel winning the World Series? So I don't know how I feel watching them win the World Series. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a strange feeling. I, you know, I think my girlfriend, um, I think she shed some tears. Um, I don't really, I can't really believe it yet. It's, it's, it's really hard for me to, I'm, I'm a pretty big fan. I went to quite a few games this season. Mm. and uh and really enjoyed um you know, i live right near the stadium so I, i'm able to go down to the baseball stadium on a whim for dinner mm. and watch a game and so that's kind of a habit that i've got into this past season so it was amazing to watch all these young players all these uh players from these uh unknown islands in the caribbean who mm. you know came to america and uh, are living the american dream um, playing sports for our braves it's it's an amazing to watch them grow up and 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 win it's just uh, i can't even describe it really <laughs> bloody sensation i mean that's at the end of the day sport is you know just a gigantic industry but at the very core of it it is that isn't it it's the passion of watching your team win lose or draw you know no matter what happens you stick with them and then when they get the win first time since 1995 for the braves to be the world champions uh Bloody awesome. Hey, uh, now your history is incredible. I mean, you know, you're someone that's been in the US military. You've worked in medicine. You work in business, the corporate world you've dominated, sports and technology. You're so well-rounded. Um, I want to talk to you. I know you have a real passion for eSport. Can you tell us, you're involved with the USA team. Uh, can you give us the gist of where eSports sits? I, I read some info uh from insider intelligence they say that the esports ecosystem globally has doubled to a billion dollars this past 12 months so it's doubled to a billion they're expecting it to double again to two billion next year 25 million viewers every month in the u.s that's the size of australia's population by the way watch esports you've got an australian population watching esport within america every month it is extraordinary the growth can you tell us where you see that industry please um, well, I mean, what what I think I'm advocating for and, and working towards with other people here in the States is to um, really start to begin to paint a pathway for youth players, because it, currently, really, the, the, the majority of the, the viewers, the audience is very young. Hmm. Um, and the money that's come into eSport here in the States has been directed towards uh, nonprofit um, STEM or STEAM, and these are science, technology, and engineering programs to tie esport with workforce education initiatives, if that makes sense, right? Mm. What we're seeing is that the kids who are into esport at an early age are exposed to computers, software programming, um, larger concepts like engineering, architecture, and things of this nature. Essentially, we've taken the jock and we've said hey you know that's cool 
But what about all these other geeks and nerds over here? They're they're pretty smart. What can they do? And so eSport has been here in the States primarily targeted towards these youth programs. Mm-hmm. Um, a series of foundations have formed. Um, a lot of them are around scholastic, um, kind of this, this scholastic um, market position for their mm-hmm. organizations. Um, uh, and that's that's bled into collegiate sports. So now we have an eSports uh, collegiate, um, foundation. It's, uh, all around, uh, you know, all, all the types of things that you would need to, to go to college in a high tech, uh, degree, degree program, like engineering or software development or computer science. And so here where we are in the state of Georgia, there's a really big movement, um, to tie together this workforce education to esports to attract even more uh, momentum from the corporate world in, um, in, you know, in here in the state of Georgia, where we can actually say that, yes, these kids started off, you know, playing these games and these clubs in high school. Um, we, they learned, you know, Python programming and these STEM programs, mm-hmm. and now they're going on to computer science degree programs uh, here at the universities in Georgia. And so what's the next step? And that's really what I'm, I'm kind of looking at and building coalitions with across the nation. And we're building um, the U.S. eSports team. Um, so we have a, an advisory board that's formed. We have a, a, I don't want to, you know, we haven't made a press release yet. So I'm giving you You some can do it here, Dave. Really early free. stuff. Uh, but, but we have a really good uh, group of people who are coming together all across our nation and uh, we're gonna we're building the policy and governance framework for how our team is going to work on an international level, and um, you know, and meet all the requirements for all the international game uh, federations that that are. Well, there's actually one primary one, but you know, there'll there'll be other um, regulatory uh, tournament type organizations that help build this ecosystem, so that uh, when our athletes here, our esports players here, gamers. Um, grow up and get into college, they actually can have a professional career beyond that. Um, yeah. And so we want to try to um, grow that end of, of esports. That's what that's what I've been working on. Well, it's a huge job you've got. You sound like you're the man for the job too. Can I ask, in terms of those demographics, that's a fascinating point because we know obviously the younger demographics so much harder to capture. You know, you look at all the the splicing of the age demographics on who uh, who is watching terrestrial TV, who is watching major sport in long format uh, content. It keeps getting older and older. So to be able to harness that youth, so valuable for advertisers, which obviously makes the world go round. Um, what is? Do you have some stats on sort of the average age of a esport player and also of a audience member? Do you know where it sits? Um, I don't. I don't have anything. I haven't seen anything cross my desk lately that had that type of data in it. Mm. Um, you know, if 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 you were if you were to kind of ask me to kind of just from what I know, my ballpark, I mean, we're, we're, we're looking at, um, the East here in Georgia in particular, um, we're looking at the esports youth movement really between the ages of 11 to 12 up to, uh, high school. Um, so K 12, so that could be 18. Um, we know that there are, there are more and more universities now that are giving out four year paid scholarships for high tech, um, degree programs and they're they're looking at this pool of applicants this this demographic to to um 
to get into those programs and take those jobs in the future. So um, I'm, 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 you know, my, my, my view is that it's some pretty, pretty big, but it really does kind of de- uh, depend on the game. Right. And we've got a lot of games who, which are really kind of youth oriented. Right. And then we've got mm-hmm. some other games, like, for example, the category of, you know, E E racing or I racing categories in motorsport, for example. I mean, we have, we have a, uh, gentlemen racers from sports car racing who are showing up in these i racing tournaments i mean these are professional drivers uh you know who are who are showing up to to compete and i i had one of them make a really funny remark to me recently he said you know uh i asked him well what what's what are you gonna do with your sports car he said oh my wife wants me to get rid of it and and he said it's much less expensive to do e-racing and i was like yeah that's true it is so so, Um, so i I think we still have a long way to go to get um to get an an, uh all the infrastructure elements together to tell that story for hey could could you become a professional player uh beyond college you know can you can we maintain that kind of you know eye hand coordination and other physical characteristics that youth have um and and you know so I think it is true. I, I believe in it. And so that's where I'm focused uh, to try to organize this. And so um, I'm doing a lot of learning along the way too. I, I've actually had quite a few conversations with, um, you know, managers of actual pro teams who, who uh, said, uh, well, you've never been in a tournament. You, you don't know. And I said, well, I don't know. I haven't been in a tournament, but I know what's coming and let's get together. So. Uh, yeah. I've had some great conversations with people from all over the country and, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really lucky to be involved in that and kind of trying to organize that. Um, and that's really kind of the same model I used for organizing ISTA is, mm-hmm. uh, is the same model we're applying to the esports uh, team. Well, it's just such a valuable thing. I mean, it would just go back to that that monthly viewership, 25 million people. That is such a valuable commodity. When you look at the, the ratings of broadcast TV in the U.S. I mean, that is standing really strong against yeah, you traditional know, you know, over, TV. Over COVID, I don't, I don't know if you know this, but here in the states, mm. during COVID, when we really didn't have any live sporting events, mm. um, some major sports channels on on cable uh, aired numerous esport tournaments because um, that was really all they could do, right? That was yeah. really all anyone could do, and so they did get airtime on major networks. Uh, and I'm sure that, that that helped expose people to these different games and, and, and the whole idea, the whole concept. Well, that's it. I still remember I was sitting at a bar in Charlotte, North Carolina, or oh, this is pre-COVID, but, and there was five screens up and, you know, there were sporting events on all of them. The fifth screen, it was an ESPN channel and it had, you know, it was a, a live gaming event in front of a huge crowd and people at the bar were getting right into it. And you sort of think, well, there's the history and there's the future of where it's going. I mean, it, it's something to really grab a hold of. Do you see, we're seeing the, the IOC continue to try to renew itself. Uh, the advent of you know skateboarding, a huge success. Logan Martin, the Aussie guy, won gold. It was a huge, huge talking point in this country. Um, do you see a future of esports in the Olympics? Maybe not in the next twelve years, but maybe in fifteen. You know, like, do you see that? Yeah, yeah. Actually, I do. It's going to happen sooner than that. Um, the IOC's virtual games, uh, their work on that, um, their learning and discovering as well. 
Um, I think that, um, you know, their first attempt to try to tie real world sport um, with uh, virtual games is right on the money. It's a great way to begin the discussions and showcase what can be done and, and how it can be done. Um, you know, I, I think the IOC is, is obviously not hitting mainstream right now. They're, they're, I think they're trying to find that bridge. Um, you know, I'm a big believer in it. I'm, I'm, a, I'm such an advocate for it that I'm going around the country trying to organize, um, you know, to build the first, you know, legitimate national USA team. And so, you know, I, I, we have a lot, there's a lot of questions that haven't been uh, mm -hmm. resolved. Um, but I think that they will work themselves out. And I think it's going to be faster than 10 years. It, it could be less than five years. Jeez. That so the LA Games could be, could make its yeah. debut the in LA, America, which makes I, sense. What I, what I hear from, from my contacts out in LA is that mm -hmm. they are, that this is something that they're planning to incorporate in, in 28. So we'll see, you know. Jeez. Extraordinary. Well, I mean, the, the, that line between actual reality and virtual reality keeps getting blurred and blurred by the day so uh, that would be incredible you know uh, what's a 2028 so the first olympics 1896 so you, you see that sort of growth you know you go from yeah. you know what was a, a replicant of an ancient greek sport to now you know gaming in la i mean it's just amazing it's incredible and people like you are at the coalface creating it uh, particularly in the u.s and we know when america puts its mind to something not too long later it comes into fruition well you know, I, i'm i'm very hopeful that we can build a a, a something that's repeatable. And we certainly would love to share that model that we develop with anyone, any other country that wants to participate. I think mm -hmm. that that's probably what's going to happen is where there's going to be several different models for how these elite teams can function and work. And, mm -hmm. um, and they'll, they'll be shared around the world to, to various NOCs, uh, you know, Olympic committees. And, um, you know, they'll, they'll pick one that's good for them and, and maybe even modify it a little bit to fit their world, their, you know, their, their cultural aspects of their sport. Mm. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm excited about it. I, I, I think it's, you know, I'm a gamer too. I, I was raised in arcades. You may have been too. Uh, yeah, you know, we, yeah. we, I came from a world where, you know, I had a Friday night pizza and stopped off at the arcade with my family, my brothers yeah. and everything. And so I, I've been around video games before. Uh, you know, around the time of Pong and the Atari mm. 2600. And, you know, I had every console from there. And, um, you know, I grew, I grew up in the, you know, in a technology family where I couldn't, I couldn't get any more computer stuff until I learned how to code. And once I learned how to code, then I could get some more stuff. And so, yeah, so building computers and around games. And that's been a, a hobby of mine since I was a little kid. So it makes sense for me to, to do it. Totally. I used to play uh, Super International Cricket on Super Nintendo. That was my game. Oh, oh wow. nice. I love that game. Mm. Hey, yeah. What about uh, AI? I know this is another very much a, a strong passion of yours, something you've got a, an indelible link to. Um, it's amazing. I just pulled this stat up. Uh, $63 billion is what the global AI industry is worth currently and the expectation is that each year there will be growth of 40 percent so essentially the best part of doubles every year until 2028 the growth is extraordinary what's your read on ai specifically with the relationship to sport 
Oh, okay. Well, um, we're very, sport is the industry is very, very far behind any other industry. It might be, if you, I mean, I'm kind of negative on it. You know, it's kind of like we're in last place as far as I'm concerned. Um, sport, Please, is, go uh, deeper, been, yeah. sport has been very, very slow to adopt artificial intelligence of any kind. Um, we're, you know, I really about 10 years ago, the data revolution started. And, you know, as you think of like how things mature and like, like next step, you know, what's the practical next step, you really have to look at other industries and see what they're doing and kind of say, okay, well, you know, next step looked, will probably look something like this. And, you know, because all these other industries have gone through this already, right. They, they adopted data 20 years ago. So, um, so yeah, I, I think uh, sport has a long way to go. I think it's going to basically be around subscription models for startups that's really the only way that sport is going to be able to interact with anything that could be called AI. Um, you know, so, you know, there'll be lots of opportunities for sports organizations to license or subscribe to a platform, which, you know, they can help filter their data and, and try to find patterns within their data. Um, and, and that'll continue to grow. Um, and that'll make, that'll make great, there'll be, there'll be great startup stories, you know, startup company stories uh, for that. Um, but when it gets to really kind of complex engineered AI, that's, that's going to be a while um, that requires some customization uh, that requires a much deeper understanding of, of artificial intelligence and things like concept representation and, and knowledge engineering, other things like that. So um, there's a lot of interest. I just think there's just not a lot of knowledge. There's not a lot of education. There's not a lot of all the other things that kind of need to be there for it to not just be a one-off you know there'll be one-off hits here and there you know but but for there for anyone to really stand up you know and say oh you know ai is doing all of this it's still very fragmented very very um uh, the visibility isn't very good let's put it that way it, it's hard to make predictions or talk about what um what's what's next but um yeah you know i i, I did start the uh, a little group on uh, called the Society for Sports Knowledge Engineering. And mm -hmm. we have about a thousand sports people from LinkedIn on in that group. And we're talking, mainly I'm talking, but we're, we're learning together, you know, what, what sports, what the, what is the, the future capability of, of in sport? Um, do they really have the, the interest to, to fund that kind of activity or would they rather just, you know, have, wait for someone else to develop it and then try to, mm. you know, again, subscribe to it or something. So, um, yeah. so it's, 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 a, it's still, a, a you know, AI is still very, um, it's different around the world. Really. We have, there's, there's different regulatory interests. There's different mm. ethical concerns. There's different applications from defense to, um, water treatment plants. You know, there's so many different tools that are being put out into the open open source uh, marketplaces now um and there are there are new right new new techniques that really aren't new but are relatively new in you know in in modern business uh language you know discussions and, and trying to figure out whether they're they're what the right use case is mm -hmm. um so there's a lot of um there's a lot of way to go you know i, I hate saying this kind of stuff because it makes me feel i feel like i'm 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 poo-pooing on AI, but uh, I, I sell AI. I work around um, AI engineers. 
um, not only in defense, but in commercial. And, um, you know, I talked to the VPs of engineering and I talked to the CIOs and I talked to the CTOs of major banks. And, you know, I, when I look at the who is the most mature out of AI, sports is probably on the bottom of the list and finance is probably on the top of the list. And maybe mm -hmm. avionics is somewhere just behind finance. Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm hopeful that someday sport will really learn from some of these other indus industry verticals and kind of take some of these ideas and try them out. Um, there, there's going to be some massive success from that. But I think, again, they're probably going to be almost one-offs uh, for a while. So, Interesting. I, I, yeah, I, I just want to uh, – I want you to – because you're someone with great vision. Now, as we sit at the minute, sport is one of the few media products that holds up strong. It's one of the few products that people still watch in large numbers. With so much fragmentation, it's one of the strong products. What about in 50 years' time, Dave? If we were having this chat in 50 years' time, in some sort of virtual reality world that we're yeah. going to be occupying, yeah. we're having a conversation. What are we saying about sport, particularly in the US, because that you know leads the world? Where's sport sitting? Is it still the NFL? Is it still Major League Baseball? Your Braves are playing, or is it an eSport? What 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 is it sitting fifty years time? Gosh, what do you I, think? I, I I hate to 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 say this, but I mean, um, it's it's gonna be a mix of virtual. I mean, I, Facebook changing their name to Meta was exactly what they should have done. It's it's mm -hmm. what they needed to do. It's where they should go. It makes perfect sense. Um, the metaverse is materializing right before our eyes. People are making their plans known on what the future is going to be, and it will be a virtual future. I don't mm -hmm. think that, um, you know, a technology, uh, thinking of the cultural aspects and around technology and just, you know, there are anti-technologists, right? They're the people who say technology is doping, right? I mean, we, mm -hmm. we, we used to hear that uh, a few years ago about technology in sport. Oh, it's, it's, it's a new type of doping. It's not fair. And you saw that with the running shoe issue and, and every sport is going to start having to deal with these issues. Where do you draw the line with technology? Where are humans going to fit into this world that we're creating <laughs> yes. or, or, or are we going to create the world around the human? So there's all, there are a lot of, uh, I mean, it's, it's anybody's guess on what's going to happen 50 years from now. You're, you're going to have an AI that you interact with that you're, you know, it's an AI because you will have told it what you want it to do and it'll do it mm -hmm. for you. Um, and that type of AI is going to control your local world that you're in, whether you're at work, whether you're at home, and so you think of the connected um, home or the IOT kind of movement, they haven't figured out a lot of the problems for how all of this stuff is going to get integrated. And the actual solution to do that already exists today. Um, it's just the people who know how to do it are very busy doing something else very critical to our national security. So anytime anyone knows how to do this, they get drawn into that world because that's where their money is very good 
And mm. the, the results are very rewarding for people who are, who are looking to do meaningful things with mm -hmm. AI. So the technology exists to do that. Um, the infrastructure to do it on a large scale exists. Um, there are barriers in between each one of those components that can be removed through acquisitions or partnerships or, you know, custom APIs or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, in 50 years, you're going to have a, a, a media AI that it's, it's going to, it's not just going to be a media AI. It's going to know everything about your house. It's going to know everything about what you like. And you're going to have shared that with it in a confidential way, just like you and I, or you and your best friend might talk privately. And that AI is going to be able to set things up for you and bring things to your attention. And uh, you'll be able to interact in a virtual world with this AI. Um, and, and so that, that, like I said, I think 50 years from now, that will be, or it might even be less, could be 30 years from now. Yeah. You'll have that world built for you. And the metaverse, and that's basically the metaverse, right? You're yeah. basically just, that's basically what I described, right? It's a integrated world where you have some aspect of it is cross-functional where you have some VR, some AR, some, you know, um, some re real people in a real world. And so all those lines will all get blurred and AI will be a big part of that. Incredible. It's funky stuff. And it's great hearing from you because you are someone who, who knows, you know, your vision is is a bit more crystal than the average person because of the fact that, you know, whether it's military, corporate world, you know, you've got a, a gauge on these things that few others have. Well, let it's, me explain it's to amazing. you real quick. Let me share mm. with you how I how that is and how I know that. Mm. Um, my father is a world recognized artificial intelligence scientist. Okay. He's yeah. a, he is a very well-respected naval test pilot. Jeez. Okay. And, yeah. and when, when he decide when he decided that he was going to become a test pilot, he had already learned some things about computers very early on and became the director of a secret program. Um, mm -hmm. that program was, uh, an, uh, a joint program between the Navy and the air force. And it was the first program to put a computer on an aircraft. Okay. So this was the time of fly by wire. And so mm -hmm. my father was one of the scientists who was right there on the forefront of it. Now, the next step after that was the computer systems that lived on that computer. And that's the software. And my father is a recognized PhD in systems engineering. Um, and he's the one who put together the architecture and that architecture today is very, very, uh, ubiquitous across our military and other, uh, government elements. Um, and so when I decided I wanted to take this technology into sports and that's what I did, um, mm -hmm. I started a, my first sports startup was using these tools in motorsport in the, in the world mm -hmm. of data acquisitions and the world of uh, data telemetry, where you have 250 channels of data being shared with engineers in a command center. And it's just like the war room. It's just like the command and control systems that you see in the army. And so, um, you know, that's how I learned all that I learned is really just through him and books and being around the company was started in my basement. So yeah, <laughs> um, I was, uh, that's how I, that's how I learned everything. And, and, uh, I still, uh, get a chance to visit with my father and, talk with him about, you know, what, what, how did this come about and who did this? And he tells me and I take notes and, and I go and find those people. I go look up all these old retired guys and ask them, <laughs> get them on the phone and ask them questions. And, 
And so that's what I've been doing for the, you know, really since 2009 or so. Um, I was lucky to get a security clearance in the military. And once that security clearance was approved, I was able to receive information that the average person wasn't able to see. Mm. So Extraordinary. Well, yeah. all power to your dad and what he's, you know, yeah. given to the world. Um, and I know the two of you watched that Atlanta Braves win last night together. So I love it. It yeah. all comes back to sport. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> hey, um, now, speaking of what you've done, uh, ISTA, ISTA, as you call it, um, just a real source and powerful source trying to, you know, as you said, really make a cohesive space for sports technology in America and globally. Uh, tell us about your mission and what you do at ISTA, please, Dave. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I mentioned just a minute ago about my startup with motorsports data acquisitions and adding mm -hmm. AI, this new type of AI. Um, I wasn't successful. I, I, I had major problems and I, and I lamented to um, the CEO of Dartfish, the data analytics, um, video analytics platform, Dartfish, the CEO, Victor, uh, and Victor Bergenzoli and I were having lunches and I was, you know, asking him for advice. And he was the only sports tech uh, startup I knew of in our area here um, in Atlanta. And, and, mm -hmm. uh, after I closed the company down, I was so depressed. I, I just kept going back, like, what could I have done? Who could I have gone to? And um, it occurred to me that I, there was no um, industry trade group that I could lean on for advice to talk to. Even the accelerators, the startup accelerators here in our area, they wouldn't touch me with a 10-foot pole. They said, oh, you have a great idea. We just don't know anyone in sports. There is no connection in any of these accelerators between. So there is a huge need for uh, a trade association, a trade organization. And that's really what we set out to do. And along the way, um, we kind of branched off into education. We felt like that was a huge part of, of a global mission. It was a, a noble, worthy cause, education. So we added mm -hmm. an education element to it. And so today we're really, a, we're a trade uh, trade group uh with an education mission um and that's that's really what we're about we're just really trying to bring everybody together and give give the platform that we've developed um to to the industry to say hey you can come here when you're ready not everyone is ready to do this but when you're ready this is a place that you can come and um lead new discussions about new ideas and and um, network around the world and bridge the gap between research and commercial and and all those other really great things that come from networking and that's really what ista is well it's an amazing journey you've been on and and so successful and i know you've got a nice linkage with astn uh, the home team here as well yeah i you know one of the one before we started ista uh i made sure to notify the astn that I, I felt like there needed to be an international organization that could help bridge the gap between these regions of the world. Because you know, you know, as you know, each region of the world has a sport and it's very easy to get a niche going in that sport. And if you wanna scale and grow, you might have to move into a different sport. And that might mean move into a different region of the world. And that's very, very difficult and complex to do. Requires a lot of capital, um, requires a lot of talent, um, and so, uh, we, we really look for our, our success really is that we look for 
how many companies now, how many companies are there in the world that are global, that are multinational, that are multi-sport? And that's what we look at. And, and that is happening. That's growing. And we're, we're really proud to know almost all of those companies and those founders. And um, so we're, we're really just trying to be the, the network hub for the world. Well, you're doing it. And uh, people can check you out, um, istassociation.com, istassociation.com, uh, ISTA on LinkedIn. And follow Dave as well. You always put up great content on uh, on LinkedIn. Fascinating stuff. Like uh, there was one that came through from you, I think it was yesterday, Coca-Cola, uh, its largest ever acquisition of the sports drink, Body Armor, taking over it at a 15% stake, now up to 100% uh, stake. Um, yeah, so you put out great stuff. I, I love it. It's always very relevant. You got your finger on the pulse, all the latest of what's happening. So, Dave Geddes on LinkedIn, ISTR on LinkedIn, and istassociation.com. Uh, Dave, I really appreciate your time, mate. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me. And if and if anybody wants to to link up, you know, hit send me a message, send me a note. I love learning about all these new technologies and. I see a new technology company every week that I never thought of before. So, so re please reach out to me, have your audience reach out to me. And, and, you know, I, I definitely uh, am subscribing to your podcast. Uh, thank you very much, Dave. I appreciate it. Ratings will go up now that we've got you on. I appreciate it. It's just fascinating stuff. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. T tell the team at ASTN we're, we're rooting for them. Okay. Yeah. Amen to that. Thank you very much. Oh, wonderful stuff. Dave Geddes there. Up next, Haley McAdam. Uh, my favorite time of the week to welcome Haley McAdam to the show. Haley, welcome aboard. <laughs> hello, hello. Thanks for having me. Oh, no, it's our honor to have you on the show. Um, Haley McAdam from 3KND Indigenous Radio. Haley is the star of On Track with Haley Mac every Tuesday between 10 and 12. Uh, and then on a Friday night between 10 and midnight, it's turned up with Haley McAdam on 3KND, 15.03 if you're in Melbourne. And then, of course, digital radio anywhere around the world, 3KND.org.au. Check them out online anytime. And, of course, Hayley, as we were discussing last week, you are nominated as the best new program for the CBAA Radio Awards and also for Youth Excellence. So uh, two nominations that you're sitting on, uh, pretty bloody cool. <laughs> yeah, it is pretty bloody cool. Um, I'm excited. Yeah. And yeah, no, it's an honor to even just be nominated and, you know, to have my work recognized is, is you know, it's so, so amazing. So yeah, to be able to have those nominations is, is pretty crazy and amazing. Richly Look, mm. Looking forward to the awards nights once they announce the winners yeah but, totally yeah. Oh. Yeah. fingers fingers crossed. oh seriously <laughs> fingers and toes um and so <laughs> uh now this week you are talking about a modern superstar of australian sport who we got hales Yes, so this week we have the amazing patty mills oh yes um yeah, you know, an amazing, amazing man. But, yeah, I'm going to talk a little bit about him. So he was born in Canberra, of course, the, in the ACT. But mm. his father, Benny Mills, he is a Torres Strait Islander man. And his mother, Yvonne, is uh, an Aboriginal woman. She is from the Kokatha uh, tribe. 
and um, her his mum was actually a part of the Stolen Generation, um, which is you know such a common theme with you know a lot of Aboriginal people. But yeah, yeah um, he you know found out because he thought that he was just a Torres Strait Islander man, but. Yeah then, you know, found out that his mum was Aboriginal and from uh, Kokatha country. Yeah. And, um, yeah, which is really amazing for him to, you know, go through that in his background. Um, but, yeah, so um, his uncle as well is a former Olympian basketballer, Danny Morso. Um, so he's the second Indigenous Australian to represent Australia at the Olympics in basketball. So um, it obviously runs in the family <laughs> for him. And, yeah, um, it's, it's just amazing. He's got a few other cousins and um, family members that are, like, in rugby league and mm. uh, doing basketball as well. But his great uncle um sorry his dad's great uncle mm. is related to eddie marbo so i'm not sure if you've heard of him but oh yeah he yeah yeah he's an amazing man he was a part of the indigenous land rights up in queensland north queensland mm. and um he really worked his way and paved the way to get land rights mm. for Indigenous people and to be able to have those recognitions that, you know, this is our land and and we want to have the power to take care of it uh, for a long time. Um, but, yeah, so it's amazing that he's related to Eddie Marbo as well. But back in 2007, he became the third Indigenous basketball player to play for the Australian national team. He was selected by the Portland Trailblazers with the 55th overall pick in the 2009 NBA draft. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah, that was after playing two years of college basketball for the Saints, St. Mary Gales. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, which is great. And then in 2011, during the NBA lockout, he played for the Melbourne Tigers of the NBL and um, also played in China for the Flying Tigers, um, which is crazy. In 2014, in the NBA championships, he became a strong contributor of the bench and helped the Spurs. Spurs? Spurs? Yeah, yeah, Spurs. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm much more of a footy person, so bear with me. Yeah, that is. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. <laughs> but yeah, and then in 2021, recently he led the Australian Boomers to their first ever medal in international competition at the Tokyo 2020 Olympics, mm. um, which was a, an amazing moment. Um, and he's, yeah, known for his three-pointer uh, shots, which he's very good at. He recently made history um, with that being the first player ever to start a season shooting a perfect 10 of 10 three-pointers which is yeah amazing <laughs> he's, he's doing so well and now obviously playing with the brooklyn nets um mm. for the nba so yeah doing doing amazing work and and he's just you know ridiculously talented mm. Well, that's it, and you, you, exactly what you said. Like the, the first player ever in the history of the NBA to get uh, ten three pointers 
10 from 10 to start the season. That's unbelievable. Like, you think of the quality of players that have played over so many years, and he literally, only a couple of weeks ago, made history. First one ever to do that, 10 from 10, to start the, the new season. Amazing. Just amazing. Um, and weren't they such a, you know, Paddy Mills leading that team. They were such a special part of the Olympics, wasn't it? Like, you know, seeing the boomers, their journey, and then to be able to get it done in that bronze medal match and win the medal. I mean, it was just pretty electrifying, you know? Yeah, it was. It was a big time. It was just a big moment, mm. you know, for be a part. And, and I was so happy for him um, as well. I was like, so excited along with you know i'm sure a lot of mob they were excited yeah. watch him and um yeah just see him win amazing so i was very lucky Haley. i got to meet patty mills uh back in 2014 um oh. so the, well yeah so i was a radio station i was working at and he and Aaron Baines, who's another Aussie dude, they were both playing for the San Antonio Spurs when they won the championship, the NBA championship. And so they brought the trophy back to Australia and they went around to different places and, you know. And so I got to meet Paddy and it was just a phenomenal experience to meet him and Aaron as well. Just two true, absolute gentlemen. Um but the NBA trophy, Haley, I've got to tell you about this. So, you know, like a 30-centimeter ruler, like you used to have in school, two of those yeah. in a row. So it's 60 centimeters tall. So it's like, imagine two of the, those rulers. And it is gigantic. I don't know how much it weighs. Like, I reckon it feels, yeah, it's big. That's it. Like, you put two, it's like, yeah. it's very long uh, or tall. And it is heavy. I don't know how much it weighs. I don't know, maybe 20 kilos or something, 25 kilos. It's heavy. And it's gold. Like, it's silver and gold. It's this gigantic trophy. And I must admit this. So, we're doing a bit of a photo. You know, I got a photo with the trophy. Because, you know, it's the closest I'm ever going to get course. to holding that trophy. It's never going to happen through playing. So, I'm just holding this thing. And I like adjust, you know, if you're holding something, like imagine you're holding like a vase or something, like, you know, your flowers in it, and you, you try to change your hand position, and it slipped in my hands, and I seriously almost dropped it. And I, like, quickly put my hand underneath it and caught it. Like, it didn't fall too far. I don't think anyone noticed. But in my own head, I was like, oh, my God. If I had have dropped that thing and broken it, like, could you imagine? Like, they let the trophy leave America, come all the way to Australia, and some idiot drops it, me. Uh, so yeah. that would not have been a good story. But, hey, I, I want to touch on what you were saying there about Eddie Marbo. I mean, I mean, he really helped to change the course of Australia, you know, much for the better with, you know, getting the land rights. I mean, that was just a phenomenal thing, Haley. I mean, he is someone who, you know, as all Australians, uh, you know, we, we absolutely be inspired by, you know? Yeah, for sure. Um, the difference that he made and, and, you know, paving the way for, you know, other tribes and other nations really go for that and, and, and challenge what's, you know, question things and, yeah. and to be able to, you know, question and be like, well, that's not right. This mm. is our land. We have a responsibility and a role to look after the land mm. um, and to do that in a spiritual, cultural way. Mm. And we know how to do that. We have the answers. Mm. But, you know, unfortunately, there are times that no one really listens to us and mm. and we are not heard. Our voices are not heard. Mm. Um, 
so yeah no he really he really paved the way and helped get those land rights for I mean mostly I would say because in Queensland there are a lot of like Torres Strait Islander Mm. um, mob that live in Queensland because it's close to the islands Um, but yeah no he he really helped that uh, the Torres Strait Islander mob and you know the Queensland mob um in that area there there's also amazing um men as well like um not not just men women as well but mm-hmm. one person that comes to mind is uh vincent lingari yeah. he he did um great work with land rights as well um in wa so gurunji country but um yeah. yeah so i mean these amazing people you know helping helping us get that recognition of that of our land and you know if there wasn't eddie marber or vincent mm. lingari this mob doing what they did mm. you know I, I can't help but think would we still have the record not necessarily recognition but you know here in victoria obviously the traditional owners can't have that they don't they don't have access to their land it's the majority of the land in Australia is still Queen the Queen's land. Like mm. it's yeah, it's the Commonwealth. Mm. So mm. a lot of us don't have those rights because we can't. Um, but yeah, so it it makes you um, really. I know it makes me appreciate where I'm from and you know still having access to that land mm. and and being there's important, especially for Indigenous people. Yeah, totally. Well, I mean. And that's the and up until that point, like they called it a uh, terra nullius, which basically means you know the land didn't belong to anyone, which is crazy when you think like okay, so you know you know in like um, I don't know fifty sleeps, I think it's going to be Christmas, right? And obviously that celebrates the birth of Jesus, and so he was born like well two thousand and twenty one years ago, okay. So indigenous people have been in Australia. For 60,000 years. So that's like another 58. So Jesus, that's a long time ago. That's only 2,000. You plus another 58 on top of that. It's like that's that puts it in perspective as to like, you know, I mean, that's literally forever, isn't it? Mm. I mean, 60,000 years. Yeah, proven. Mm. But we've been saying over easy 80,000 years. Oh, um, wow. The Indigenous community have been saying that, yeah, you wow. know. There's other things that we say as well, like... Um, you know, we've been here for for a very long time. We've got we've got these stories, and you know, non-indigenous people might think they're a bit um, weird or peculiar, peculiar, or you know, things like that. But we've got these stories that um, speak about all all the land and the country and the hills that's been there. You know, since pretty much the Big Bang, we've yeah. got stories about the sky and the stars that's yeah. been there for a very, very long time. Um, you know, and those those stories might be a bit weird, but why do we have these stories? Is that's been passed down from generation? Is because we have been here for a long time, and we know we've got a connection, and you know, so um. Yeah, it's been proven 60,000 years, but I think it's certainly longer that we've been here, um, you know, taking care of this country and, yeah. and 
yeah, living from it. Yeah. Well, the stories are not weird. They are magnificent. <laughs> I mean, there's no yeah. no question about that. Oh, um, uh, certainly. But, like, yeah. you know. I know what you some mean. Some people like, might yeah, think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, yeah. <laughs> but, no, well, yeah, that'd be um, – They'd be well informed to listen to you and and people talk about these stories and actually you know uh, learn and and you know ap- you know appreciate these different things. But honestly, that puts it in context, doesn't it? Like Jesus is only two thousand. Like that's only two. Like that's not even long, and it's a long time. You know, like um yeah. So it's it is incredible, and that's the thing. Like yeah, as you said, and Vincent Lingieri. Oh, we got to talk in another show. We got to talk about him because oh my yeah. lord, he has got. Uh, yeah let's do vincent another time but um yeah but i want to sure. thank you so much Hales. like yeah um wrapping up both eddie marbo and patty mills and seeing that great that legacy live on you know eddie marbo the legacy it, it just keeps going forward and forward you know with with all family and and specifically in a sporting sense uh with patty mills Haley, what a beautiful summary thank you so much for your time um and we'll chat next week absolutely thank you for having me well, that wraps us up for another week of Sports Cutting Edge. Thank you very much for your company. Of course, we're here. All thanks to the Australian Sports Technologies Network, astn.com.au, powering sport through innovation. You've been listening to Sports Cutting Edge for the Australian Sports Technologies Network. For more, jump online at astn.com.au.